Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. And uh, if you're new here visiting, welcome. Glad to see you. Glad you're here. Um, I'm glad to be with you today. I, I missed you guys last week. Uh, some of you may know Caitlin and I were down in Texas the last week or so taking care of things with my mom's house. Um, and some other various things that we needed to wrap up down there. It was a lot of work uh, for, for, um, for us, both physically and emotionally in various ways, but glad to be back here with you this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Psalm chapter 4. Psalm chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. And as you're turning there, um, I'll just share a little bit more with you. I, I recently learned that this year is the 200th birthday of the American poet Walt Whitman, right? So I, I learned this. I was listening to NPR in the car one day. They did a little feature on him. They had some readings from his poetry and such. Um, and... Walt Whitman has been described as sort of the inventor of American poetry. Uh, this is true not only in his free verse style, he was the first one to really uh, do that, but, but also in the topics and themes that he wrote about. He often wrote about the American experience and uh, things like that. Do, do any of you remember reading any Walt Whitman in school? Or maybe you just enjoy poetry and, and you've read some of him. One that I remember reading back in school is this uh, well-known poem that pictured the American people as a vast and varied chorus of singers. If you're familiar with him, you might know it. It goes, I, I hear America singing, the varied carols I hear, those of mechanics, each one singing as it should be, blithe and strong, the carpenter singing as he measures his plank or beam, the mason singing as he makes ready for work or leaves off for work, the boatman singing what belongs to him in his boat, the deckhand singing on the steamboat deck, uh, the shoemaker, the woodcutter, it goes on and on. And at the end, it says, each one singing what belongs to him or her, and no one else. The day what belongs to the day, at night the party of young fellows, robust and friendly, singing with open mouths their strong, melodious songs. Right? This is this well-known poem. I remember reading that one, and I think there was some illustration that went with it in the textbook that I had back in high school. But this, this poem, in some ways, does seem to capture the American spirits, I think. You know, it's, it's very democratic. It's very dignifying. Each person is using their own voice, living their life. It's this picture of a great society all in harmony with one another. And there's something kind of inspiring about it in some way. But there's something else I see in it that seems to be sort of distinctly American. And that is this. Each person is defined by their work. The hustle and bustle of the poem is the hustle and bustle of hard work. And this does seem to be the idea of the American dream, if you've ever heard about that. It's that idea that anyone who works hard can achieve their own success. And this idea is just baked into American culture, and I think into a lot of our ideology. It goes really deep. 
Now, the, the idea of work and having work, it's a wonderful blessing, and it's an incredibly dignifying thing. Anyone who's been unemployed for any period of time knows how difficult and discouraging that can be. But work can also be a very hungry kind of animal that chews us up and spits us out, leaving us exhausted, anxious, and in dire need of rest. Right, so, so when Caitlin and I were traveling uh, down to Texas and back this last week, we, we had late night flights both times. Uh, and that meant there were a lot of those sleepy bobbing heads. You, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah? Uh, I experienced this myself. You're sitting in your seat, you're drifting off to sleep, your head starts to fall, and then you wake back up and catch yourself, right? And you just can't get any good sleep, even if you're flying in the middle of the night. And it's hilarious to watch, but maddening to experience. It is not fun at all. And, and this sort of sleepy head bobbing thing is a really great picture of our culture, because we're tired, we're exhausted, but we just can't seem to rest because our culture is not in the right posture for resting and for sleeping, right? Work keeps calling, the mind keeps racing, and we just keep on going. Now, sometimes this idea of the American dream works. You work hard, you get paid, and life feels like a success. But many times, hard work is only met with hardship. And the American ethic to work harder and harder leads to nowhere but burnout. And I think Psalm 4 is a song for that moment. It's a song for when the American dream doesn't work. It's a song that offers us a really needed corrective for our idea of success. I think ultimately Psalm 4 is an invitation to rest. So hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my right. You gave me room when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. How long, you people, shall my honor suffer shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. When you are disturbed, do not sin. Ponder it on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Oh, that we might see some good. Let the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace, 
For you alone, O Lord, make me lie down in safety. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the invitation to rest. I pray that as we consider the words of this psalm, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So so this psalm begins and ends by addressing God. And in between, the psalmist gives some instruction to the people. So we're going to walk through the psalm that very same way with hearts turned toward God, but also ready to receive instruction and wisdom. So the psalm begins amidst distress with a call out to God, answer me when I call, O God of my right. You gave me room when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So, so as we began this morning, we, we talked about how work can be this kind of hungry animal that eats us up and burns us out. And do you know why work is that way? Have any of you heard of Parkinson's law of work? It's, it's like a law of physics. It states that work expands to fill the time allotted for its completion. Everyone knows this is true. No matter what project it is, it will take as long as you give it and probably just a little bit longer, right? And now, in some ways, this is really good news for procrastinators because, well, we just give it less time, and so it's going to take up less time. And I'm not making that argument, although I probably do procrastinate more often than I should. Um, But work takes up as much time as you give to it, and it burns up as much energy as you feed it. It's kind of like that beast in Greek mythology that grows two heads for every one head that was cut off, right? It's this, this thing that just eats us up. And once upon a time, technology held this promise of lightening our workload, right, of making work easier. And and once upon a time, there were many articles dreaming of a four-day work week in the distance when technology is is developed and right. But, But now we know that having email in our pockets and access to the, the world wide web everywhere we go has actually stretched out the work week to be seven days. Because we're always plugged in. We're always connected. And so we always have to be on. Right? And so the American dream and this cutthroat work ethic that goes along with it completely swallows us up. And I think it affects a lot more than just our time. It also drains our energy. It leads us to burnout. And it also affects our psyche as anxiety becomes the leading mental illness in the country. And I've heard stories of anxiety attacks, hearing that it it feels like the whole world is pressing in on you and that it's even kind of hard to breathe in a moment like that. There's anxiety from the pressure to perform. And there's also a wave of depression that can creep in from the fear 
of failure to perform. So this work-driven performance culture that we live in affects our mental wellness, and I think pushing it even further, it also affects our spirituality. Because if hard work can lead to material success, then it's not that far of a leap to assume that hard work might lead to spiritual success too. And for many of us, our spiritual lives just kind of turn into these long religious checklists and work routines to make ourselves right with God. But the opening verse of this psalm flies in the face of all of that. The psalmist says, answer me when I call, O God of my right. Other translations say, God of my righteousness. And right from the start, this psalm insists that our righteousness comes from God and not from ourselves. The psalmist confesses that God is the source of righteousness. And I think that this is the beginning place of untangling ourselves from the wearying web of work. We have to recognize that our righteousness, our worth, is rooted in God, not in our performance. And so the verse goes on to speak to that anxious feeling of the world closing in. It says, you gave me room when I was in distress. And I love the poetry here. The the Hebrew word for distress is literally a narrow space. So the picture here is actually that feeling of anxiety that we're talking about. The psalmist says to God, when the world was closing in on me, you made it spacious. You gave me room whenever I was in distress. And again, the source of this is God. God is the source of our worth, and he is also the source of our relief. In a world that condemns, God makes us righteous. And in a world that demands, God gives us room. He offers us rest. So in verse 2, the psalmist moves on and turns from addressing God to begin speaking to the people. And he does this in the form of a lament. He says, How long, you people, shall my honor suffer shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And I just want to say, when we find ourselves in the place where it feels like our hard work isn't paying off, it is not wrong to lament and to cry out. He cries, how long will my honor suffer shame? How long will my hard work lead to nothing? And then he turns to the people and he asks them, how long will you love worthless things and believe the lie that your worth is in what you have and what you do? We might do well to ask ourselves these very same questions. It's not wrong to lament in the midst of fear or anxiety, but as the people of God, 
That's never where we stop. In verse 3, he goes on to say, but know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So in the midst of questioning and doubt, the psalmist reasserts his trust in God. He essentially says, I may be lamenting, and I may be questioning, but I am not going to stop praying. And this is why I love the Psalms. I love them because they are so honest. They show us that no matter where we are in life, whether success or failure, whether confident or questioning, whether rejoicing or mourning, we can always bring ourselves and all of that to God. We can trust what the psalmist says here. That no matter what it is that we have to say to God, the Lord hears when we call to him. So the psalmist began by addressing God, and then he addresses the people with a lament and and kind of this call to trust in the Lord. And in verses 4 and 5, he gives some instruction for what this trust practically looks like. He says, when you are disturbed, do not sin. Ponder it on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So the instructions here are to not sin, to ponder in stillness, and to worship God. And we are told to do all of these things when we are disturbed. Now that phrase, when you are disturbed, has a lot of meanings to it, kind of like distress, meaning a narrow space. This term can mean emotionally to be angry. Physically, it can mean to tremble. And here in this context, it kind of catches all of those for this general sense of being disturbed. And this can be the feeling of utter exhaustion when you have worked yourself to the very end. It could be the feeling of anger that you have whenever all that hard work doesn't seem to be working out for you. It can be the feeling of anxiety at all the work that you have to do. Or maybe even that feeling of depression when everything comes together and it all feels hopeless. And in the midst of all of this, when you are disturbed, Do not sin. Because the fact is that when we are exhausted, when we're angry, when we're anxious and depressed, we are vulnerable. And sometimes we respond to that vulnerability by lashing out at other people. Sometimes we try to medicate it with substances and sex. Sometimes we try to numb it by distracting ourselves, by zoning out into media or devices, or distract ourselves simply by pressing on and working even harder. And all of these things are sinful 
and destructive ways of responding. When we are worn out by work, we become vulnerable to sin. And when anxiety sets in, it can seem really natural and even logical to work even harder, right? To just try to get it over with. But rather than doubling down and moving ahead, the psalmist tells us to be silent and to be still. He tells us to ponder on our beds. Instead of numbing ourselves or distracting ourselves from anxiety, we're called to dig into it, to bring that anxiety before God, to ponder, why am I feeling this way? To seek the wisdom of God and ultimately to cry out for help, saying, God, I am in a narrow space right now. The world feels like it's closing in on me. Give me room. Give me help. And then to wait quietly with God. The picture that comes to my mind as I read this verse is that of a parent cradling, rocking, and quieting their child. When we were down in Texas last week, I got to spend a lot of time with my five-month-old nephew who was there. And it was a joy to hold him, to play with him, to see all of his varied expressions. But any time he started crying, there was very little that I could do to comfort him. And it was just time to hand him on over to mom or dad because they were the ones who were able to calm and to comfort him. And I think it's because he knows them. He trusts them. And because they know him and how to respond to his cries and meet his needs. Ponder on your beds and be silent. In the midst of anger, anxiety, and exhaustion, the call is to go to God because he is the one who knows you. He knows your needs. He knows your heart. And ultimately, the call is to trust him. Let him quiet you and comfort you. And I think that all of this will eventually lead us to worshiping God. In verse 5, it says to offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. To offer sacrifices means to go to the temple, right? And, And to join in the people of God to worship him. And I think when everything is pressing in all around us, turning to God in worship is just the right thing to expand our perspective. And anxiety, when the world feels like it's getting smaller and smaller, worship shows us just how big God really is. And in the midst of depression, joining with God's people shows us that we're not actually alone. 
And all of this is what it means to put our trust in God. Rather than our work or any other place where we might try to find our value. But, verse 6 goes on to show that there are still a lot of people who seem to put their trust in God, but only do that in order to get what they want. Right? Verse 6 says, There are many who say, Oh, that we might see some good. Let the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. And ultimately, they don't worship God with a pure heart, but rather as a means to an end. But the pure heart goes on to say in verse 7, You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and wine abound. You see, that first group determines how valuable God is based on whether they have what they want or not. But the second group says, my worship of you does not depend on my circumstances. My worth comes from God. My rest comes from God. And the gladness that fills my heart is worth more than the artificial abundance of the American dream or whatever it might be that we're pursuing. My joy does not rest on constantly changing circumstances, but rather on the unchanging God who carries us. And with that, the psalmist turns back to God in verse 8. No longer distressed by the voices of societal pressures. And the psalmist affirms his trust in God and resolves to rest. He says, I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me to lie down in safety. This is a picture of finally resting in God. And it's, it's not that picture of the restless bobbing head, right? You're trying to fall asleep and bouncing back up. Rather, he lies down and falls asleep in peace. And all of this comes from the Lord who gives us room and gives us rest and safety. So as we close, I have a couple of questions that I just want you to ponder and take with you. And I have one challenge for you to take from here. The first question is, where do you find your worth? How do you measure that? Where do you feel your success and your failure? Where do you find your worth? And the second question is, where do you most experience anxiety? And my guess is that these two things are probably connected. That whenever we find our worth in something that's not God, our life is very quickly an anxious mess filled with fear, 
filled with uncertainty? Where do you find your worth? Where do you experience anxiety? And the challenge that I have for you really is a challenge in our culture. And it's this, to rest. It's really hard to do nothing. Because in our culture, it's so easy to do everything. But my challenge for you is to rest. What does rest look like for you? What does it look like to rest in God and to trust him? Ultimately, the one who reaches out to us and offers this to us is Jesus, who says, Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens. It is I who give you rest. Amen.